right. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Good to see uh, newcomers with us today. Always glad that you're here. Welcome to everybody online. People who just weren't brave enough to go out in this weather today. Come on. Hopefully you'll come next week. We'd love to see you in person. I get it. It is absolutely frigid out there today. In fact, some people just may be staying home all day to have their own prayer altar for the lions tonight. I get that totally. They need it. They need it. Uh, I'm going to be showing you three ways to declutter your life, but first I want to let you know that we are absolutely thrilled to be able to announce that we have two men who are prepared to be elders here at South Point, Jeff Prong and Chad Habermel. These are men that meet the biblical qualifications as outlined in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They're men who know the Word of God well. They love the people of God. They have been in a group with me last year for nine months, and they have been interviewed by the elders and they uh, are being recommended to you by the elders today to be voted in, to be approved uh, on January 28th during the services. That's by all South Point members. Chad has been a member here for 16 years. He's been married to Jessica as well for 16 years, who's been on our staff for uh, several years. She's not right now, but she has been. He has led uh, the worship teams here. In fact, you'll see him playing guitar sometimes on the platform. He's led uh, our door greeters team. He's been on the finance team. In fact, he'll be the one doing the budget presentation next week along with Ron Britt. And he works as uh, the VP, uh, finance and corporate controller of International Automotive's component group. Jeff Prong has been a member here for four years, been married to Vicki for 51 years, and they have two children. His father was a minister, and Jeff has served in an elder as an elder uh, in what used to be Twin Oaks Christian Church, and before that it was called Wyandotte Christian Church. He was an elder there for 44 years. Uh, he's a truck driver with FCA Transport, and he will be gladly retiring soon. So if anyone has any scriptural reasons why these men are not qualified to uh, serve as elders, please inform the elders of South Point in writing by January 22nd. All right, we'd like for you to settle a disagreement between my wife and I. We've had for a long time. This is very serious. It has to do with kitchen countertops. Should your kitchen countertop have small appliances on it or not? Okay, so if you think that your countertop should have some small appliances, please raise your hand. All right. How many think, no, you keep your kitchen countertops clean? Keep the stuff off there. I think I won that one that time. I lost first service. Yes, because out of sight, out of mind, right? If you don't see, I'm not talking about keeping all your appliances out, like the waffle maker and the blender, but come on. When you put the air fryer away, you don't think about using it until you see it, right? When it's convenient, you're more likely to use it. But I, I have to say, I do completely get the idea of a clean countertop, clean sink, you know, empty desk. It just feels better, right? I mean, just uh, less stressful. It's more peaceful. Uh, simplicity. It's good for you, right? For your mental and emotional health. All right. But one of the resolutions we do make around this time of the year is we're going to declutter our lives, right? Get rid of a bunch of stuff we don't need, but which is really hard because we just tend to accumulate stuff. That's the kind of society we're, we're in. In fact, um, we're now at a point where one in 11 Americans accumulate so much stuff that they pay over $1,000 per year just to store it. You know, they have to rent out one of those self-storage places. Or, get this, of those who have two-car garages, one in four are not able to park two car cars in there. They have so much stuff that one of the cars has to stay out in the driveway. On the way in here this morning, I was noticing all the driveways 
It's filled with cars. I'm like, on a day like today, really? You're not going to park your car in the garage? You got that much stuff? No. That's too much stuff. But that's, that's what we do. We pursue this American dream right, of having more and more and more stuff. And yet, um, Info, Investopedia did the math on the American dream and found out that it's costing far more than we can afford. There's a higher and higher price tag attached to the American dream, which they now estimate would cost you $3.4 million from the time of getting married to saving for retirement, yet the median average, the median income for a typical American worker would be $1.7 million. So you see that the American dream costs twice as much as we're actually making. I mean, that is if you want to have, you know, your two children, you want to be able to afford childcare and college tuition and buy a home, the costs just keep going up and up and up. In fact, USA Today found that funding a family of four cost about $130,000 per year, while the median income for a family of four is only about $75,000 per year. Now again, those figures are, are fluctuate based on how big of a house you want, uh, what kind of an education you want, how expensive a wedding you could have. So you could cut, cut all those costs down quite a bit. I mean, how much you're going to save for retirement, but it's still expensive. And it's another reason why so many people are struggling with mental health and negative uh, emotion kind of issues, anxiety and fear and depression. Last week we saw that the most basic way to deal with those things is first to begin to depend more on God and less on ourselves. And we develop that through uh, the habits or the disciplines of prayer. Remember, perpetual prayer, reading regularly the Bible, weekly worship. If you want to catch that message, go on our website, YouTube, Facebook, any place, uh, Spotify to get the podcast. But we're seeing that these countercultural values that biblical wisdom offers changes the way we handle life. The whole way uh, of understanding the world, it shifts our perspective, it renews our mind, it uh, reorders our thinking, it reforms our values. The Bible's way of doing things very different from the world. And one of the ways that we get influenced by the world is to think that more equals better, right? The more stuff you have, the happier you'll be. And, and even though we know by experience, that's not true. We know we're not going to be happier just because we get more stuff. So what if we were to make the choice to declutter our lives? And not just material things, but really to simplify things. And of course, living on less, with less, is being forced upon us by this is crazy inflation. Young adults especially are finding it difficult to maintain the same standard of living that their parents and grandparents had, especially in terms of housing affordability. It's becoming a renter society. I mean, it's not an ownership society. We're, we're getting to the point now where some are suggesting, don't even bother owning anything. We're just going to end up renting everything. Like, you need a tool? Don't go out and buy a tool at Home Depot. Just click on their app. They will drone that tool over to you to rent for a couple of hours, right? And that'll kind of be the way it is with most things. Home rent is so expensive. We've got Gen Z. A third of them are, are still living at home with their parents. Thanks to decades-high inflation, uh, skyrocketing uh, student debt, a shady job market, not to mention all the, the after-effects of the pandemic lockdowns, the American dream really is becoming more of a mirage for many people. Still... Uh, we look around and we've got more products to offer than ever. I mean, we've got more, what, technological gadgets and 
trinkets and toys than ever before, right? I mean, Americans buy 40% of the world's toys. 40%. I mean, how many trips did Amazon make to your doorstep over this Christmas holiday, right? Boxes and boxes showing up all the time. And then you give your kids all these toys for Christmas. What do they play with? All the boxes and boxes, right? So more doesn't necessarily make us happier, but we're at a place now where we've got so much stuff and we're not any happier. We've got this sense of expectation of entitlement that stuff that used to be thought of as luxuries, now we can't live without. They're necessities. Yet we look back to our our forebears, what, 95 years ago, the Great Depression, all the things that they did without. Are we any happier than they were back then? Or or even further, go back to the 1800s when people didn't have really any of the conveniences or comforts that we do today. Are we any happier than they were just because we got more stuff? We have crazy amounts of personal debt. Gambling, more than ever, throwing away all this money on these pipe dreams of getting rich. Money issues are among the most frequent causes for marital strife and divorce. Our closets full of clothes we don't wear, houses full of excess, (laughs) bric-a-brac, and knickknacks and decorations that are just gathering dust. Basements full of Rubbermaid totes who are full of crammed with I don't know what all. And some are just downright hoarders. I mean, you might see a few elbows flying on that one. Some people just hoard. I, my in-laws were hoarders, and we did not have a good time after they died getting rid of all the junk in their house. It took forever. So we are in this time when we're trying to impulsively buy stuff, and, and we end up squandering all this money and live with the regrets of it, trying to fill this void with money, with things, our values polluted by the desire for prosperity, trying to keep up with the Joneses, consumed by consumerism, provoked by advertising into greed and covetousness and and envy, and we're just shackled by all of our stuff, and so we're trying to seek to find a better way, something less stressful, calmer, and decluttering is a pretty good strategy to start that. Because money and material things, they end up complicating our lives and weighing us down. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, you can be burdened by uh, not being able to pay your bills, not being able to take care of your family. That produces a lot of anxiety, too. But we can simplify things and, and get to a place where all these things are less important because we're focusing more on God. We begin to understand that all this stuff, well, first of all, it's not our stuff. It's God's stuff, right? We're just his stewards, his managers that have been loaned this stuff for a while. We recognize that everything we have, possessions, time, space, everything really is his. So what breaks that stranglehold of materialism on our lives is learning to be content and to be generous with what we have. And that's our main point, is practicing contentment and generosity breaks that materialistic grip on our hearts because our hearts really do get weighed down with a lot of woes and worries when we get distracted by stuff and want, wanting more and more all these desires is not making us live a better life it's not making us more satisfied more joyful more peaceful so the, the key is to start letting those kinds of desires go 
And more than just for practical benefits, not only because it's good for us, but we have theological convictions about this, that Jesus actually taught us and showed us a better way to live. And it's not by acquiring more and more stuff, but by focusing on the one thing. What's that? Matthew 6.33, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So that's what stewardship is. We say, God's entrusted me with some stuff, and we're supposed to be accomplishing his will, his purposes. And when I'm doing that, when I keep in mind that it's his stuff, that he's promised to take care of me if I put him first, then that relieves a lot of that burden and that worry and stress. He cares for me. He's going to meet my needs. I'm focusing on the one thing, on the things of God, the spiritual stuff, and he's going to take care of all my needs. Not all of my wants, not all the things that I feel like I'm entitled to, but in that context, he's talking about food, drink, clothing, shelter. Yeah, he's going to meet those needs. And a few verses before that, Jesus says, all this stuff is the main competition for our allegiance and our devotion to God. Verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, but we try. We know Jesus said it, but we still try. In fact, the word for money there in the Greek, the original is mamona, which we translate as mammon, but really it just means stuff, possessions, um, wealth, specifically the kind of treasures that we put our trust in. Because look, there's nothing wrong with possessions per se. It's when we turn our possessions into an idol, when they're in competition with God. So that's what idolatry is. We can be materialistic idolaters because now instead of us having the money, the money has us. Like, do I own it or does my stuff own me? Maybe a thousand years before Christ, in the Proverbs, there's this prayer. Proverbs 30. Give me neither poverty, that's good, nor riches. Wait a minute. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Like, who needs God when I got everything I want? When my security and my, my hope and my happiness is in my stuff. So I can be, have too much stuff and I forget God or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So, of course, none of us tend to think that we have too much stuff. We always tend to think we have too little. So we have no problem with the prayer, Lord, do not give me poverty, right? Because I don't, I don't want to have to steal. I don't want to have to beg. But how many of us pray the other part of that prayer, Lord, don't give me riches? I mean, when's the last time you prayed? God, don't give me riches. Um, been a long time probably, right? That's a bold kind of prayer. Lord, don't make me prosperous. And yet there's a whole segment of Christian teachers out there doing just the opposite and promoting the prosperity gospel, saying you better ask God for wealth. As a child of God, you're entitled to riches. God wants you to have a lot of money. It's it's God's guarantee. He's obligated to get, if you put God first, if you have faith, then he's going to pay you back with a lot of stuff. He has to. He said that he's going to do that. So possessions are our right as Christians. Well, yes, James 1.17 says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father, but absolutely not is God obligated to give us anything. 
We reject that prosperity gospel because there are far too many warnings in Scripture about the desire to get rich. Jesus certainly did not live the prosperity preacher lifestyle, did he? In fact, he said animals have places to, to rest, but I don't have any place to put my head. So we reject all that nonsense. But we would also reject poverty theology that says you're supposed to be poor, that nobody's supposed to have a place to lay their head. Jesus is not promoting that. Yeah, he told the rich young ruler, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor. But that's not a command that he gives to everybody. Now, if you do that, that's commendable. But the reason why he said that specifically to that rich young ruler is because he was rich. And he obviously had a mammon problem and he was putting his trust in his riches instead of God. So Jesus is challenging him to start serving God instead of his money, to stop being an idolater. So you don't have to be poor to be godly. Possessions aren't a curse. These warnings are directed to those who misuse wealth, who are greedy. What we embrace is not prosperity theology, not poverty theology, but stewardship theology that says everything we have comes from God. And if he's blessed us with something, we're grateful for it. It's a privilege, and we're going to enjoy it, and we're going to share it. See, there's no rule in the New Testament about how much or how little a Christian should have. But the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we better take this to heart. He says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Will we? But those who desire to be rich, who's that? Well, it's a lot of us, right? They fall into temptation, into a snare, it's a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, idolatry, is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many pangs. Now as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So we use our stuff the way God intends, with contentment, not with covetousness. We don't desire riches. If we have them, we thank God for them, but we don't trust in them. We enjoy them, but we also share them with others. Because notice, Paul doesn't say, command those who are rich in this present age to give it all away and feel guilty about it. No, he says, use it, but use it the way God intends. Because materialism isn't a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of money. It's not a matter of amount. It's a matter of the heart. You can be materialistic whether you're rich or whether you're poor. It's not about how much money you earn. You can be greedy. You can be covetous, whether you're rich or poor. You can worry about money, whether you're rich or poor. You can be stingy with money, whether you're rich or poor. You, you can be ungrateful, whether you're rich or poor. So let me give you three ways to declutter your life. And the first one is to get rid of unneeded stuff. Do most of us have more stuff than we need? Probably so. Uh, I don't know how much is too much. 
Uh, that's something for you to settle in your conscience between you and God. How, how little is too little? How much is too much? To own, earn, save, all that. But I, I think maybe it might be time to go through the house. To do a sweep through the house and look at all the stuff that's just gathering there collecting dust. And say, why do I own this? Do I need it? Did I just impulsively buy this? To do a closet and drawer survey and think, when was the last time I actually used that? When was the last time I wore that? Has it been more than a year? Why do I have it then? Into the get rid of box it goes. And we've done that. I mean, I've given away clothes to family and friends. I don't know what they did with it after it left me, but I didn't care. It's out of my house. If they can use it, great. And the same thing has been done for me. Family and friends have given me their clothes. And some of my wore and some of my didn't, some of my regifted as well. It's all as long as somebody's getting some use out of it instead of sitting in a closet. You know, a little while back, we finally decided after many, many years of having the same dishes that it was time to get new ones because we were missing so many pieces after all this time that all right, we gotta break down and get some new dishes. So out the old one goes. What are we gonna find some new ones? How much is that gonna cost? Then it hit me, oh yeah. Up in one of these really high cabinets, we have these really fancy dishes that have been passed down to us through the generations from grandma and I don't know who before her. And I'm always thinking like, one day I'm going to sell those because they're going to be worth a lot of money. So we've never, ever used them. And then I checked on how much they're worth. And they're not worth anything. So what's the point? Why have we kept them all these years? So guess what? Those are our everyday dishes now. We're eating off the fancy eating food stuff. You know, we're... we're and we're breaking the dishes and it's okay. Who cares, right? But finally, you might want to sweep through the basement, go through all the shelves down there, go, go through the garage and all the equipment out there. Do we really need all that? How about all the collections? We love collecting stuff, don't we? How many collections are you holding on to? You think they're going to be worth something someday? Might want to check again. How about all the sentimental memorabilia what's that doing laying around what are you going to do with that I, can I tell you oh I want my kids to see it someday they don't care I found this out they couldn't care less so what are you doing with it do what I did I took pictures of it and then I threw it away all my bowling trophies my graduation tassels my certificates in the track but I got pictures of them in case they ever do want to see them, like that's going to happen. Because I'm telling you, if you hang on to all that stuff, one day they're going to be cleaning out your house and they ain't going to be in a good mood about it. They're not going to have very fond memories of all the junk that you left them. And now they got to get rid of it, right? So just a thought. Maybe you're ready to downsize. Maybe you don't need the big house anymore. Maybe you don't need the extra house, the vacation home. Maybe if you're looking for a car, you don't have to get one so big, so nice. Downsize a little bit. How about your cable package? How about all those premium channels? Where could I downsize? Do I need all of it? Maybe you're aware of the concept called minimalism. It's kind of a movement that's been going on. People from different backgrounds and for different reasons say, hey, just unburden yourself. Free yourself. Get unencumbered from all these material things and live on less. And some say, I'm only going to own so many things. I'm going to have 100 things and no more. Others just say, no, I'm going to get rid of all my duplicates. Whatever it is, they all say there's a benefit to being free from all those burdens. They say, look, you go through all your stuff and if it doesn't add real utility to your life or any beauty to your life, 
then out it goes. Chuck it. And that leaves more time for focusing on what matters, on uh, what's more fulfilling. I think they got a point. Now, none of this can be done by guilt or compulsion. It shouldn't be forced upon you. But you just say, you know what? I don't need all this stuff. So why do I have it? Second way to declutter is to go easy on the spending. You declutter best by not accumulating to begin with, right? Just don't buy it. Can you live with less? Because we remember it's the Lord's money, and I don't want to waste it on stuff that I don't need. I, look, I'm no financial expert, but I do know this from Proverbs 22. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is what? The slave of the lender. Be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you, right? We go into debt for all these things that we don't really need. And it's, it's very easy to rack up tons of debt in a society that's always promoting spend, 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 borrow, borrow, borrow. And that debt brings anxiety and fear. Because why? We're, we're, in, we're in bondage. We're slaves to the lender. So you get out of debt as fast as you can. At least pay off those high interest credit cards as fast as you can. Don't spend more than you earn. Live within your means. Act your wage. We say, well, duh, everybody knows that. It's so simple. What? But most people don't do it. They really don't. That's why American debt is just off the charts crazy. Be frugal. Doesn't mean being a cheapskate. But as Christians, we don't need to indulge in everything that is exorbitant and extravagant and luxurious and elaborate. In fact, James 5, 6 says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So there's a judgment day coming. None of that stuff's going to matter. Now, I know that's... Those terms are all relative to the culture and era that we're in. But we really ought to be more serious about impulse buying and selfish spending. Because we don't live for what this world offers. We live for the world that is to come. For the better things ahead. Remember Jesus told a story about a rich man? who had fine clothes and he feasted sumptuously, all the while ignoring those who were in need. And then he dies and he ends up in torment in Hades. And Abraham over in paradise says, you enjoyed your good times on earth. You had a lot of good stuff then, but now you're in anguish. He did not use what God had blessed him with according to God's purposes. He had mismanaged his blessings. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Say this with me. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he tells about another rich man who had lots of crops. He built big barns. He had ample goods. And he thought, I'm set for life. And then he died. And God called him a fool because he had to leave it all behind. Jesus says in Luke 12, 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I want to be rich, but the right kind of rich. Are you rich toward God or just rich in this world? Have you laid up treasures in heaven? Don't wear yourself 
out. Buying, accumulating, maintaining, cleaning, fixing, storing. Why? What for? Ask questions like, do I really need this? Can I live without it? Is it just going to sit around and take up space? Can I afford it? And if I can, is there a better time or place to get it cheaper? Do, do I have to have the latest of everything? Do I have to have all the upgrades? Now, you can follow Jesus and have nice stuff. Because remember, it's a heart issue. It's not, a, it's not an amount issue. But here's the problem. Overspending is a symptom of spiritual problems. Because if your desire is to impress people, then it's a pride problem. If your desire is for more and more, well, now it's a greed problem. If your desire is to get what belongs to others, that's a coveting problem. And if your desire is to keep up with the Joneses, well, that's an envy problem. Now, Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for he, God, has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Contentment doesn't come from a store. Contentment is something that cannot be bought. Contentment comes from Jesus. He's the only one that can satisfy your soul. That's what you're missing. That's the void. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He gives me everything I need. And he, if he gives me more than I need, then I'm thankful. But I'm not going to strive after it. I, I don't need it, and I'm not going to stress over it. I can live with less. It's okay. Can you learn to be content because you already have what you need? Listen, as a Christian, you have far more than you'll ever need because you have the promise of an inheritance from your Father. You have the promise of treasures in heaven. So anything we have here and now, that's just a bonus to what's to come. One more way to declutter is to give generously. I mean, why are we doing all this? Why are we minimalizing and simplifying and sacrificing? It's so that we can be free and share. Scripture talks about, hey, do your job, make money, Take care of your family, but also so that you can have some to share with others. And when we give our offerings to the Lord, you understand what that's about, right? That we are returning to him a portion of what he's given us as an acknowledgement that this portion represents it all, that it all belongs to you. And so I'm giving that back to you, Lord. And yes, we do that because he wants us to. We do that because um, of who he is, because he's worthy. But we also do it because of what it does for us. We need to do it. God doesn't need it. We need to do it because it gets our hearts aligned with God. It gets our priorities straightened out. Because look, you cannot become like Jesus without being generous. In fact, we think about the Old Testament law. What was the law about? You give back how much? A tithe, right? 10% of your income. But we're not under the law anymore. We're under the new and better covenant that Jesus brought. And so a lot of Christians think, well, that, that lowers the standards. I don't, I don't think so. Jesus never came to lower anything. He always raises the bar, doesn't he? So our standard isn't about a, a set percentage or amount. It's about generosity. That's what we strive for is to be generous. I think a tithe, 
10%, yeah, that's still a good biblical benchmark. But really for us who have much better things than they did in the Old Testament, that's just a good starting point, isn't it? In fact, here's what Jesus says in Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. See, that's why we say around here, we don't want something from you. We want something for you. We want you to experience that. God's got something better for you. So are you experiencing that blessing because you're using what God blessed you with for his purposes and not just hoarding it for selfish purposes? I think God blesses those who get this right. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of you must give as he deci has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's what we want for you. Don't miss out on that. John Wesley was a minister in the 1700s and he was um, one of the key founders of the whole Methodist movement. Now, at the height of his time, he was making a lot of money. Uh, in fact, in terms of today's dollar, at his height, he, he would have been making the equivalent of about $2 million a year. In fact, over the course of his lifetime, of his ministry, in today's dollars, he would have made about $30 million. But what did he do with all that money? He lived on 2% and gave away 98%. So that by the end of his life, all he had left was a few coins and two silver spoons. That's it. He had given the rest away. Erwin Lutzer, author and minister, writes that eventually all human currencies will become worthless. And to illustrate that, how, for example, Nazi money became worthless, he tells a story uh, from William Cantillon in his book called The Day the Dollar Dies about a school being built in uh, Berlin during World War II. It was a Bible school. It was going to be used to train young Germans to live for Christ and to go into ministry. So this is a really cool project, right? And one German mother was wanting to assist in this Bible school and she brought this gift to, to help build this place. She brought, what was a lot of money back then, 10,000 marks that she held with pride and, and tenderness. It was really as like part of her very life. And it was because it, it took a lot of hard work to earn that much money and to guard all that money during the war. So here she's offering this great contribution. And yet Canelon had to tell her the sad fact. He says, how could I tell her that she had held that money too long. Why did it fall to my lot to shock this sensitive soul with the news that her money was now worthless? Why had she not read the morning paper and heard the announcement that the new government in Bonn had canceled that Nazi currency? Madam, I said slowly, I'm awful sorry, but I cannot accept your money. As gently as I could, I told her, it has been canceled. Now, a month before, all that money could have been used to purchase materials, to feed workers, to help 
prospective students. But now a month later, it was absolutely worthless. And you know where we're going with this, right? One day we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And all that we had accumulated, all the money that we left in the bank and in our retirement accounts will be absolutely worthless. Your currency will be canceled on that day. And that's why practicing contentment and generosity breaks that materialistic grip on your heart. Think about anybody, and maybe it's you, has anybody survived a near-fatal accident? I mean, it makes you look at life very differently. It completely reshuffles what you consider important and valuable. Or, or maybe somebody living with a diagnosis that they don't have much time left to live. They've got impending death hovering around them. It makes them reevaluate everything. All the stuff just doesn't really matter anymore. All that really matters is this and other people. You begin to value other people. And the truth is, we're all facing impending death. None of us is guaranteed a tomorrow. All the stuff that we work for will be canceled. So we better get our houses in order and our hearts uncluttered while we have the time. If you've never made that decision to follow Christ, that's where it starts. Put your trust in Him, not in the things of this world. Repent of your sins. Be baptized. Because you know there are these three facts that God made you and He loves you. But sin separates us from God. Jesus came to restore us and redeem us. To redeem means to buy. Jesus came to buy you. He already owned you. He made you. But He came to buy you back through His death on the cross. That's how much He loves you and cares. That's how much He values you. And there are three responses we have to that. Through faith, with repentance, in baptism. And there are three promises that we'll receive. Forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and eternal life. God wants to give you those things free today. That's grace. You can do that today by coming up at the end of the, this message when the music is playing or at the end of the service. There'll be people up here to help you, answer your questions, pray with you, get you baptized today. We're ready to do that right on the spot. Email us, text us. We'll get back to you right away. But today, it, this could be the best decision you ever make. Let's pray about it. Father, we're so grateful for what you have given us with, but uh, really, we, we, we don't want to gain the whole world and lose our souls. Instead, we want to seek you and your kingdom first. We don't want to look back one day and see all the things that we thought were so important, that we needed so much, just didn't matter at all. Thank you for giving us all that we need and all that we have. But help us to keep you as our only master, to be a good steward, to be content and generous. Lord, we want to be, be found faithful, whether we have a lot or a little. We want to store up those treasures in heaven, not trust in them here on earth. God, the stuff that's here today and gone tomorrow, we want to invest in your kingdom, in your work, in your mission, and to have our hearts where our treasure is. And Lord, I want to pray for those who are in serious debt. They don't, they don't see any way out. They're full of anxiety, full of despair. God, give them hope. Send them help. Provide for their needs as they trust in you. 
deliver us all from these selfish desires that just keep driving us to inflate our lifestyles. We want to value what, what you value. Instead of buying into the delusions of this world, God, we want to live for the kingdom to come. So thank you, Jesus. You bought our forgiveness. You bought our freedom from sin with your life. You paid for the debt that we could never repay, that, that would have put us in debtor's prison forever in hell. We owe you everything. And we pray this in that name. Amen. Come on and stand. Church, join us.